So uh, last week, uh, we started talking about the church. Um, the church emerged onto the stage of history uh, a little over 2,000 years ago on the hills of Jesus' death and resurrection. Matter of fact, to be specific, 50 days after the resurrection, 50 days later, uh, the church emerged onto the pages of history on what was known as the Feast Day of Pentecost. 120 people went into an upper room in Jerusalem, and when they came out, they came out as the church, and they sparked a movement that the world really has never recovered from. Uh, and the beginning of the church, that day was the beginning of a revolution that would eventually topple the greatest empire in the history of the world, which was Rome, and whose teaching, the church's teaching, would effectively leave the Jewish temple obsolete. So in many ways, the church uh, defeated both the empire and the temple, even though the temple and the empire had colluded and conspired together to kill the church church's founder, Jesus of Nazareth, who was killed on a Friday, but God raised him on a Sunday. And then after that resurrection, 50 days later, his followers, who were an eyewitness of his resurrection, uh, began this movement known as the church. And so they conquered an empire, and they left the temple obsolete without political power and without military might. Uh, they entered into the world with a brand new vision, a new vision of who God is and what God is like. They said that when you think about God, you should think about God as a perfect heavenly father who has a perfect love for his imperfect children. And so they offered the world this new vision of God. Uh, they offered the world a new vision of what it means to be human. And along with that vision, uh, there was significance and meaning and purpose attached to it in a way that humanity had never been able to experience before. Uh, the church went out into the world and they offered a brand new vision of what it looks like to live life to the full to actually live a life of joy and hope and peace and contentment and passion and purpose and meaning and significance. Uh, they offered a brand new vision of how we are to see each other, that when we look at each other, we see one another as men and women, individuals who are created in the image of God. Every single person, regardless of their belief or behavior, they have dignity because they are created in the image of God. They have immense worth because they are created in the image of God. And the church brought that vision to the world. They brought a vision that said that women are equal to men and children are of equal value as adults. Uh, they brought a brand new vision that said master and slave, they're on the same footing. They brought a vision to the world that said even the king, even the king is just one among many. And the church went out into the world and 2,000 years later, uh, since the church's genesis, since the church's inception, since the church's inauguration on the day of Pentecost. Kingdoms have risen, kings have fallen, empires have crumbled into oblivion, but the church has remained unscathed. It's remained unscathed by time over 2,000 years. It's been unscathed by the efforts of those who sought to destroy her. Uh, the church has remained unscathed by changing generations, one generation departing, another generation emerging. The church has remained unscathed by evolving culture and evolving views and evolving values and evolving definitions of, of right and wrong within the culture. Uh, the church has remained unscathed for 2,000 years. It's remained strong just as Jesus predicted it would when he said these words, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of death, the gates of hates will not overcome it. So the church that Jesus is building, according to Jesus, is being built 
to last. And you can just take a cursory look at the last 2,000 years of history, and, and any of us can recognize in just a matter of moment, uh, in a matter of moments, that the church's pertinence and the church's significance has remained undiminished and unfazed over those generations. And it's really quite amazing to see how the church continues strong to this day. And it shouldn't surprise us uh, when we know that Jesus predicted 2,000 years ago, I'm going to build a church, and it's being built to last and there's nothing that can come against it that can stop it. So when we're talking about the church and we're talking about how permanent it is and how effective it is, uh, we're talking about the fact that it's truth is timeless, that the truth that the church brought to the world, it's true in every generation. What was true in the first century is true in the 21st century. What was true in the first century was true in the seventh century. It was true in the middle ages. It was true pre-Renaissance. It was true post-Renaissance. It's truth is timeless. Its relevance is boundless. That means that the church, its influence can speak into any socioeconomic demographic. It doesn't matter how educated you are, non-educated, it can speak into developed nations, into undeveloped nations. The influence of the church, the relevance of the church, it is boundless. Its influence is relentless. It just keeps on chipping away. It's like salt that just keeps salting. It's like light that just keeps lighting. Its influence is relentless and it's worth is priceless. That's the church. The, t the truth that we have, it's timeless. The relevance that we have, it's boundless. Our influence is relentless, and the worth of the church is absolutely priceless. Uh, one day Jesus was talking to his disciples and he was talking to them about the kingdom of God. And in Matthew chapter 13, there's a series of parables. Uh, uh, many commentators refer to it as the mysteries of the kingdom. Uh, Jesus was speaking about the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And on one particular occasion, he spoke to them this particular parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And, and if you've ever seen a mustard seed, you can't be very far away from it in order to see it because it's just so tiny. It's like a little bitty, it's just a speck. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. And though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. And then in the same breath, he tells a different story to make the same point. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. So when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he's in a way also talking about the church of God. He's talking about the people of God. And what he's given us is a picture of the church. It's a picture of the church growing, infiltrating, influencing, and overcoming. The church started small, but it's growing larger and larger. The church is infiltrating. It's infiltrating into families, into communities, into nations, you know, into the world. It's influencing and it's overcoming. And that's the picture that Jesus gives. Uh, the church begins small, but it's growing larger and larger until it looms over everything. It's influence it's slow. It doesn't happen overnight. It creeps and it creeps and it creeps and it's like yeast making its way, working its way through dough. And it's influencing culture, beginning with individuals like you and like me and like us. And then it begins to spill over into relationships with friends and family. And then it's in a community and then it's in a region and then it's in a nation and then it spills over into the nations of the world until the whole world is saturated in the sway and the influence of the 
church. It's a picture, what Jesus was saying. It's a picture of what happens when the church decides to be the church, when the church decides to be on mission, uh, to live out its purpose. It's a picture of what it looks like when not only the church, but individual followers of Jesus take their purpose both seriously and personally that we take our purpose personally and we take it seriously. And, and the mission of the church, the mission of every Christian, this is not gonna be new for some of you, but for some of you, it might be. Uh, for some of us, all of us really, it, it's a worthy revisit. But the purpose that God has given to the church, the purpose that God has given to all of those who follow Jesus is simply this, love God, love people, make disciples. Uh, I'm gonna count to three and then everybody here in London, everybody in Somerset, everybody in Williamsburg, everybody in Bell County, we're just gonna say this out loud, okay? You ready? One, two, three. Love God, love people, make disciples. I'm supposed to take this seriously and I'm supposed to take this personally. You, as a follower of Jesus, you're supposed to take this seriously and you're supposed to take this personally. This is my mission. This is your mission. This is your purpose. This is my purpose. This is the mission statement. This is the purpose statement of the Creek Church, as well as every single church that exists. And for every single Christian, we all have the same mission. We all have the same purpose. This is our marching orders. They are clear and they are non-negotiable. Love God, love people, make disciples. I'm to take it personal and I'm to take it seriously. I'm to keep my eyes on this. I'm to keep my heart focused on this. I'm to center my life around this. I'm to organize my life around this because when I keep my eyes on purpose, when I keep my eyes on mission, when the church keeps its eyes on its mission and on its purpose, some really important things happen. When we really concentrate on love God, love people, and make disciples, it forms our identity. It's who we are and it's what we do. It's just not what we do. It's who we are. We are a people who love God, love people, and make disciples. That's our identity. It brings clarity. We can all be clear on what the most important thing is, what we have been called to do, what your mission is, what my mission is, what the mission of the local church is. Hey, this brings clarity. We don't have to debate it because it's so clear it's not up for debate. Uh, we don't have to reject it because we say, hey, I'm a little bit confused. It's not clear. Jesus was so clear about this. It establishes the priority. There's nothing more important than this. Uh, this is the thing that is more important than all the things. This facilitates unity. Uh, we're different from each other. Uh, we probably have different theological viewpoints on some things than each other. Uh, we doubtful see very many things the same way, but yet as a very diverse group of people who follow Jesus, we can work together. We can cooperate together. We can join hands together because we believe that we can unify around this goal, around this purpose, around this mission of loving God, loving people, make disciples. And in the end, it assigns responsibility. This is your responsibility. This is my responsibility. This is our responsibility. Love God, love people, make disciples. So to talk about purpose and to talk about mission is one of the most important things that we can talk about because it is the most important thing. Now, love God, love people, make disciples. Uh, for those who may be students in the New Testament, you know that that one statement uh, is a collection of two different things that Jesus talked about. Uh, it's what we call the great 
great commandment and the great commission. And when you fuse together the great commandment that Jesus spoke to his followers and the great commission that Jesus spoke to his followers, when you put those two things together, you've got love God, love people, make disciples. Um, One day, Jesus was uh, talking with his followers. He was teaching around the temple. And and as he was teaching around the temple, a a religious scholar came up and asked Jesus a question. A, A religious expert, a theological expert came up and asked Jesus, hey, what is the most important thing to God? This is how he asked it. He said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And there were 613 identifiable commandments in the Old Testament law. So Jesus, what is the most important commandment to God? There's 613 of them. Uh, It's hard to memorize them. It's even harder to try to live them all out. So which ones are the most important? What's most important to God? And, And asking what's most important to God, in my opinion, it makes perfect sense. Because if you're gonna choose to believe that God exists, and you're gonna have faith that God exists, then I think the natural follow-up is, if God does indeed exist, then what's most important to God? Because if God exists, it matters what's most important to God. And I wanna know what's most important to God, because I'm not God. So Jesus, what's most important to God? Is it theology? Is theology most important to God? Is doctrine the most important thing to God? Is believing right? Is it having the right creeds? Is it having the right boxes to check to say, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this, I don't believe that, I don't believe that, I don't believe that. Is that most important to God? Is morality most important to God? Is holiness most important to God? Is behaving right most important to God? Is it praying? Is it a certain group of sins or a certain sin, a certain action, a certain behavior that's most important? What is most important to God? And so Jesus, he immediately answers the question and he says, the most important thing to God is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Now, it's really easy to talk about this and kind of skate by, but, but this has a practical value to it. This has a practical outcome. There, there's a real practical application of what it looks like to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. To love God with all that you are and all that you have, it means that God is your highest aim. That, that there's nothing else that is more important in your life than your relationship with God and God's relationship with you. It means that God, you regard God, I regard God as our greatest authority. That there's no other authority that is greater than God's authority in our life. And it means that God is the source of our deepest affection. That there's nothing and no one that I love more, that I have deeper love for than God. That's what it means. He's my highest aim. He's my greatest authority. He's my deepest affection. Jesus said that's the most important thing to God. That you are to live your life according to the vision and with the values that God has spoken over your life through his word. That when you seek to live out your life according to God's vision for your life, with God's values in your life, that's what it looks like to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When God is the source of your greatest love and your highest aim and he's your greatest authority, it means that you realize on a real practical level that God's purposes trump your own purposes, that God's plans trump 
my plans, that God's desires are greater than my desires, that when God is the one that I love with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I realize that my life, my life, your life, our life, it's just a means to an end. Not my end, not your end, but God's end. That, that when I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, it helps me to see myself as I am. It, it helps me to see the pecking order as it is. That God is at the top, I am not. God is at the top and no one else is. That God is the one that I've got my eyes on, my heart's fixed upon, I'm aligning my life around his vision and values for my life. When I love God, when you love God, when we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it means that we're willing to abdicate the throne of our own kingdom, of our own life, that we're willing to give up the right to make our own decisions, to call our own shots, to run our own play. We, we wake up, we live our life saying, God, I wanna follow your plan, I wanna follow your purpose because I wanna love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're my highest aim, you're my greatest authority, you're my deepest affection. And God, I want to make sure that you're at the apex of all the hierarchies of my life, that no one and no thing is more important than you. And when we live that way, and when I live that way, and when you live that way, and when we live that way, we begin to see everything else in light of our Heavenly Father. We begin to interpret everything around us in light of who He is and what He has said. And, and so Jesus said, okay, you wanna know what's the most important thing to God? It's that you would love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That you would regard your Heavenly Father as your highest aim, as the greatest authority in your life, as the deepest affection that you have for anyone or anything. That's the most important thing to God. And so Jesus, he concludes that with saying, this is the first and greatest commandment. There's nothing more important. Nothing you could bring up Nothing you could point to is more important than what Jesus just said. And so while everybody's taking a breath and, and everybody's saying, okay, that's a good answer and, and that's a correct answer and a lot of people may have already known that answer, but Jesus in the same breath, he says, and the second, the second is like it. Not second in importance, but really equal in importance. The, the second commandment, which is on equal grounds with the first is love your neighbor, as yourself. And again, this is, this is not underneath the first, this is equal to the first. So what's most important to God? That you would love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and of equal importance to your heavenly father and my heavenly father is that I would love my neighbors as myself. And as you may already know, Jesus taught that our neighbors are just not people we agree with, our neighbors are just not people we're related to. Uh, our neighbors are just not people that we're in a faith community with. Our neighbor is anyone that we ever intersect with in this life. There's no exceptions, there's no exemptions. It doesn't matter about their political affiliation, it doesn't matter about their moral status, it, it doesn't matter how they believe or how they behave. Every single person, Every single person that we ever will come into contact with, that we will ever talk to on the other side of the phone, every single person on this planet is our neighbor. And Jesus said the most important thing to God is that we would love every single one of those neighbors as we love our self. 
Um, you know, I, I've talked about this a lot of times and, and I told our staff, this is this real difficult usually for me. Uh, I, I don't like feeling uh, redundant, though when I read the gospels, I find Jesus being redundant. Uh, I, I don't like feeling repetitive, though I know that's how I have learned uh, in so many areas of my faith. I've just learned through repetition, repetition, repetition. So it's always a little bit, you know, of a mind game for me to, to know that I'm gonna be talking about something that, you know, I've talked about this before, and not only have I talked about this before, but I've talked about this quite a bit. And I have to remind myself, this is the most important thing we can talk about. And you can't talk about the most important thing enough. So you may be seasoned, and you may have been here for a while, and you may be, hey, I know that, I got that t-shirt, hey, what else you got this morning? Hey, listen, I know enough about me, and I know enough about you. We can't hear this enough. We can't be reminded of this enough. Uh, when I was thinking about you know, new ways of thinking about this and new ways of talking about this, uh, an old quote kept coming up. Um, it's a quote that Billy Graham is credited with saying, and, and I just thought, man, well, that kind of sums it up right there. Uh, Billy Graham, he said that, it's God's spirit. It's, it's the spirit's job to convict people of sin. And he says, it's God's job to judge people, but it's my job to love people. It's the spirit's job to convict. It's God's job to judge, but it's my job to love. And what's happened within the church, maybe in the last few decades and, and maybe throughout history, when we weren't being the church the way we were supposed to be the church and when we got our eyes off of purpose and when we got our eyes off mission, what happens every single time is we step in to trying to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. And when we try to do, and I try to do, what only the Holy Spirit can do, things don't work out as good than when the Holy Spirit just does it. And then when I try to be God and I just try to judge people and I try to come to conclusions and I make assumptions and assume I know things that I don't know and assume that I would never and assume this and assume that. I've tried to step into the role of God in judging people. And it's not my job to judge because you know what? I suck at it. I'm terrible at it. I don't like to be judged and I'm not good at judging because there's always things that I don't know. There's always something that I can't see. There's always a set of things that I can't possibly understand. So it's not my job to convict and it's not my job to judge, but it is my job and it it is your job and it is our job to love. And that part we can take responsibility for. That part we can own. That part we can do. Anybody can do that. And, and so Jesus says, this is the most important thing to God because the idea being the greatest confirmation and greatest demonstration of our love for God and our faith in God is our love for people. Now, most of us weren't raised this way. We were taught that the greatest confirmation and demonstration of our love for God and our faith in God were many different things. And depending on what tribe you grew up in or what circle of Christianity you grew up within, uh, it really depends on what you may have been told or what you heard. But according to Jesus, the greatest evidence of my love for God and the greatest evidence of my faith in God is ultimately my love for my neighbor. And it's your love for your neighbor. That's what reveals the true nature of our faith in God and our love for God. And then Jesus closes out this whole little uh, teaching with saying all the law and the prophets, all in the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So all of the Old Testament, 
When you read the Old Testament, and you should read the Old Testament because it's written for your benefit. It's written to teach you. It's written to encourage you. It's written to give you hope. When you read the words of the Old Testament, know that every command that you can find in the Old Testament, every story that you can find in the Old Testament, every proverb or song that you can find in the Old Testament, the ultimate interpretation of it is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. So whenever you open up the scriptures and you're reading the Old Testament and you ask the question, what does this mean for me? You can always know that ultimately what it means for you and for me is that you would love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you would love your neighbor as yourself. If you get anything else out of it, you've read it wrong. If you get anything else out of it, you've interpreted it wrong. Jesus said, all the law and the prophets, that's the point that God was making all the time. That's the point that God was making with every single commandment. When you realize that out of every commandment, out of every one of those commandments, there is a chain that's connected to an anchoring point, to a starting point. And the starting point of all of those 613 commandments in the Old Testament was to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And when you realize that, You begin to read the scriptures with a brand new set of eyes, looking for what's most important to God. And what does it look like to live out what's most important to God in my life, in my generation, in my circumstances? And all of a sudden, the the Bible becomes so much more relevant. The scriptures become so much more relevant because I know what I'm looking for. I'm looking for what's most important. And I'm looking to how to live out what's most important in my life. That keeps me from getting distracted. That keeps me from losing focus. That keeps us on mission. That keeps us exactly where God wants us to be. Now, Jesus would tease this out a little bit more uh, the night that he would be with his disciples, uh, when he would wash their feet, the night that he would be betrayed, uh, hours before he's going to be arrested and betrayed and crucified. Jesus says in John 13, he, he takes this a little bit further and he says, a new commandment I give to you, a new command, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. And it was as if Jesus was thinking, okay, if love your neighbor as yourself is not clear enough, Let me be more clear. I want you to love one another. And I'm just not gonna leave it up to some abstraction. I'm I'm just not gonna leave it undefined. I'm not gonna just say, go figure it out. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And as those guys are listening, if, if they were thinking, they could have thought to themselves, you know what, he's loved us patiently. He's been patient with us. Any of us, any of you, Feel like God's been patient with you? I I mean, God's even been more patient with some of us than we have been ourselves. I mean, God is so patient. And he says, I want you to love as I've loved you. I want you to love people patiently. People don't always progress at the pace you want them to. Loving someone is walking in life at their pace. You're not dragging them, you're not pushing them, but you're walking with them at their pace. That's what it means to love someone patiently. You want them to run, but they may not run. You want them to walk faster, but they may not walk faster. They may not be changing fast enough. They may not be living up to the standards you want them to live to, but you love patiently because that's how he's loved me. That's how he's loved you. You love them completely. You get to know them. And the more you know, the more you decide to love them. 
And when something ugly and something nasty gets pulled out and you look up under the mattress and it's, oh my gosh, this is so nasty. This is so dirty. You know, this is horrible. And, and you see things and you hear things and you discover things. And the more you know, you just decide the more you're gonna love because he who knows everything about me loves me better than anybody else. He who knows it all, he who sees it all, he who reads every single thought is the one who loves me perfectly. He says, I want you to go love the way I've loved you. I want you to love people consistently. I want you to love them with truth and with grace and with mercy. I've loved you, Jesus could say, I've loved you even when it cost me. I loved you even when it hurt me to do so. I loved you and because of it, I've been willing to go to the second mile. I've shown compassion, I've shown kindness. That's how I want you to love one another. I've treated people with dignity because I know they're created in the image of God. That's how I want you to love people. That's how I want you to treat people. I don't want you to ever let the truth get in the way of grace. And I don't want you to ever allow grace to get in the way of truth. And in the end, don't forget, don't forget this. I loved you by sacrificing my life for your good. I sacrificed my life for your good. That's how I want you to love one another. And if you do this, if you do this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. When the world sees your compassion, your kindness, your respect for other people, when they see how patient you are and how compassionate you are and how gracious you are and how merciful you are, when, when they see how you leverage truth to bring about freedom, that you don't leverage truth as a weapon, but you bring about truth in order to bring about freedom and to bring about healing and to bring about wholeness. When people see you love like that, they're gonna assume you're with me. When they see you embrace, you know, people that you have nothing in common with and you embrace people that you disagree with, people are gonna say, oh, you must be with Jesus. When they see you love the unlovable, when they see you forgive the unforgivable, they're gonna know that you're with me. By this one thing, by this one thing and one thing only, not our Bibles, not our songs, not our attendance, not our political record, not our activism, not our visibility, not our PR, not the books we write, not any of those things. By this one thing will they know when you have love one for the other. Now, when Jesus talked about this and John wrote it down, it wasn't something sappy and sentimental. That's not what it was. It was something painful and brutal. It was something radical and costly. It was something messy and hard to watch. Listen, if you were at Calvary on Friday when they crucified Jesus, love was not easy to watch. Love was not easy to be a witness of. Love was not easy to be confronted with. It was not comfortable to see. It was not comfortable to experience. It was painful, it was brutal, it was bloody, it was radical, it was messy, it was smelly. That was love. It was love in action. It was self-sacrifice. It was love hanging on a cross that said, everybody else is more important than me. You are more important than me. Love on that cross said, when you can't, I'm gonna. When you can't, 
I'm going to. Love on the cross said, I'm gonna do what's best for them, even when it may not be what's best for me. I'm gonna do what's best for them, even though it may not be easy for me. Because love is drawing near. Love is getting hands dirty. Love is inconvenient. Love is hard. Love is saying I'm doing whatever it takes to do what needs to be done. That's love. That's the love that Jesus had in mind. That's the love that the disciples had in mind when they recorded the words that Jesus spoke. The type of love that Jesus talked about said, hey, who you are, it's more important than what you've done. The love that Jesus had on the cross that said, hey, sinners are more important than their sins. That's what we learn when we look at the cross, which is the emblem of God's love through the ages. Jesus died to show us what love is, to show us what love looks like. Did he feel like it? Probably not. But don't ever forget that even when he chose such a brutal, bloody, difficult, inconvenient path of love, the writer of Hebrews would later add commentary and say, for the joy that was set before him, that even when love is hard, and even when love costs, and even when love is inconvenient, and even when love calls for self-sacrifice, there can be joy in it because of the faith and the hope that believes it will be worth it. It's most important to God, it's what's most important, and if I get what's most important right, it's gonna be worth it in the end. Now, later after the resurrection, Jesus would take his disciples outside of Jerusalem and he would speak to them the great commission. This was the great commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. Love one another as I have loved you. But after the resurrection, Jesus took his disciples, his followers, and he spoke these words to them. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, all authority. Now, don't miss this because this is a big deal. Jesus says, I reserve the right. I have earned the right to define what's most important for you. I have the right and I've earned the right to direct the course of your life. I have the right because I've earned the right to define your purpose to define your mission. That's not up for debate. That's not based on your passion. That's not based on your interest. That's not based on your giftedness. That's not based on your experience. He says, I have the right because I've earned the right to tell you what's most important and to direct you in the direction of what's most important in your life. In other words, I have the right to define your purpose and mission, your responsibilities, to order your priorities, now, I, I, I wanna tease this out just a bit more because this is such, such a big deal. Uh, when, I was, when I was reading these words and a few weeks ago, and I'm like, okay, I, I wanna see this. Uh, I, I'm listening to lots of different people talk about it. I'm reading lots of different books about it. You know, I, I wanna see this. I wanna hear this in, in brand new ways. And, and in this moment, when Jesus is saying to his followers, all authority has been given to me, he, he's looking at a group of Jewish disciples. And in many ways, he's saying, guys, I am your greatest authority, not Moses, not Torah, not the prophets. He could go on if he wanted to say, not Peter, not Paul, but me. I am your greatest authority. All authority has been given to me. I died for your sins. I was raised from the dead. I've earned the right. I have all authority. It's been given to me. Now, this is really important. This is kind of a side note, but I think it's really worth pointing out. When Jesus is regarded as our greatest authority, 
When Jesus is regarded as our greatest authority, some people will say, and I think that they would agree with what I'm about to say if, if they just would have a little bit more nuance and they would talk about it just a bit more. But a lot of people will say, well, the scripture is my greatest authority. Jesus said though, that all authority has been given to me. He spoke of himself. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus has the greatest authority, it makes it much more difficult for you and I to twist the scriptures to serve us. When Jesus is the great authority, when Jesus is the greatest authority and we read scripture in light of Jesus, it serves him and his purposes, not my own. It makes it more difficult to manipulate scripture to say what I want it to say when Jesus is the greatest authority. Because when I read the scripture, I have to read the scripture in light of who Jesus is, in light of the incarnation, in light of his life, his words, his actions, his ethics, his values. That means I open up the Old Testament, I'm reading it with Jesus in mind. If I'm reading the New Testament words of Paul or Peter or James or Jude, I'm reading it with Jesus in mind. And the way that I get to the truest meaning of it, and only until we get to the truest meaning of it do we unearth the true sense of its authority. When I get to the truest meaning of it, it will be because I read it in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has said. And so Jesus said, I want you to know that I have all authority. Now, here's the thing that I wrote in my Bible a few weeks ago, because I think that this is the underlying point that Jesus is making, that Jesus's authority is almost always at odds with our desire for autonomy. Um, truth be told, we don't like authority. That's just kind of how we are. We haven't lacked authority since the garden and we haven't lacked authority since the garden. And, and church people may be some of the worst when it comes to authority. I mean, they just might. I don't know, I'm probably not talking about you, talking about the 1130 crowd, talking about you know somebody who decided to lay out this week, but I'm telling you, church people are some of the worst. Hey, don't park there and you park there. You know what that is? That's an authority problem. I can park where I want to. Hey, don't sit there. I think I will. And it's not because you have an emotional attachment to that seat and fell in love with it a few years ago and can't give it up. It's just because I don't, I don't wanna to be told what to do. Hey, sing with us. Don't think I will. Yeah, but, but even God says, no, I don't think I will. Some Christians live as though, hey, if I didn't vote for you, I can disrespect authority. If I don't agree with you, I can disregard authority. We all desire autonomy. We all wanna live life you know, define, defining our own terms and setting our own course and establishing our own priorities and choosing our own responsibilities. We're all like that. But Jesus said, I have all authority. I have the authority to call the shots. I have the authority to call the play. I have the authority to direct you, to define the terms of your life. I have all authority. And if that's true, that means I have two choices. If that's true, it means we all have two choices. I can either accept his authority and surrender to it, or I can reject his authority and rebel against it. That's what Jesus is setting up in what he's about to say. You can either accept my authority and surrender to it or you can reject my authority and rebel against it. Jesus says, I want you to know my way is better. You just have to trust me. My purpose is better than your purpose. You just have to trust me. My way is better, but you're gonna have to trust me. And so Jesus says, okay, I got all authority. I'm gonna call the play. Here's the play. I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
It's best translated as you go. Go, go is not an imperative. The only imperative that's in this verse is make disciples. Uh, it really should be translated as you go. As you go, make disciples. As you raise your kids, make disciples. As you pursue your career, make disciples. As you build your business, make disciples. As you coach the team, as you go to class, as you travel abroad, as you live your life, make disciples. As you do what you do on the days of your life, as you go, make disciples. Live in such a way, engage the world in such a way that other people want to follow Jesus because of you, that other people want to follow Jesus because of us. This is Jesus's way of saying, you are called to multiply yourself. You're called to make a difference in the faith of other people because each one of you can reach someone. Every one of you can reach someone, so go reach someone. No one comes to faith alone. So who's gonna come to faith because you decided to lead them there? No one comes to faith alone. You go be the person that leads them to faith. Uh, this is kind of Jesus's way. I heard one person describe it this way. This is Jesus's way of saying, there should be more of you because of you. There should be more of you when I come back because of you. Remember, Jesus is getting ready to send back to heaven. And, and he's gonna tell them, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going away, but I'm coming back. And when I come back, there should be more of you because of you. There, there's always a someone in someone's story of faith. So just go ahead and decide that you're gonna be someone in that story. Somebody's gonna tell the story about, hey, you know what, I worked for them. I, I worked in their office, I worked for their company. I'm just gonna tell you the way they treated us, the way they respected us, the way they cared for us. I mean, I'm telling you, they didn't preach to us. They didn't walk into the room and say, open your Bibles, turn or burn, you crispy critters, you know, you bunch of hellions. They didn't do any of those things. But, but they, just, they just were so present with their faith and their love was so evident. I, I worked for them and I'm telling you, I, I just knew it was their faith. And, and when they tell the story of how they came to faith, they'll talk about how they worked for you or they worked with you. I, I worked with that lady in the office and I'm telling you, I knew just a little bit of what was going on in her life and, and because of it, I, I, it made faith so attractive. Or I played, I played ball with him. Uh, I, I, he was on my team and you know, he was just different than everybody else. She was just different than everybody else. And I'm telling you, there was something about the way they chose to live their life. It just drew me closer to faith. I, I, they were my teacher. I sat beside of them in class, whatever it is. Someone is always gonna have somebody in their story of faith. Jesus said, go ahead and live your life in such a way to be that someone for somebody else. And this was the purpose that he spoke over us, that we're to love God, love people. And as we go, loving God, loving people, we are to make disciples. This is our purpose. And he connects this purpose to a who, not a what. He said, I want you to fish for people, Matthew 4. He says, I want you to do for others, Matthew 7. In Matthew 9, he says, I want you to look at all the people who are hurting, broken, confused. Lost people, hurting themselves, hurting others. They're like sheep chasing hard after lies. They're like sheep following imposter shepherds to their own demise. But Jesus said they are a harvest to reap. So keep your eyes on the field. Keep your eyes on the broken and the bruised and the struggling. Keep your eyes on them because that's your purpose. That's where you're gonna find meaning and significance. That's where life is really gonna come alive for you. 
That's our mission. That's to be our preoccupation. That's what's supposed to motivate us and inspire us. And then he says, baptize them. Baptize them. Baptize them into your community of faith. Make them part of the family. And love one another and serve one another and pray for one another. And then Jesus goes on, he says, and teaching them. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He says, I want you to teach them what I taught you. Teach them to go to the second mile. Teach them to do for others. Teach them to not seek revenge, but to pursue forgiveness, to forgive the unforgivable, to love the unlovable, to love their enemies. Teach them that a little faith, a little faith will make a big difference. Teach them that their words matter. And not only do what they say matters, but how they say it, it matters. Teach them not to worry. Teach them that it's better to give than receive. Teach them that they can have peace and chaos, that they can have joy and tribulations, that they can have hope and despair. Teach them to have compassion and to show mercy. Teach them to love to the max and live life to the full. Teach them to humble themselves so that they can honor others because you'll never be able to honor others until you humble yourselves. Teach them that God loves them unconditionally, that God has forgiven them completely. Teach them that the way to find their life is being willing to lose it. Teach them that even if they gain the whole world and lose their soul, it's not gonna be worth it. Teach them that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Teach them that even though I go away, I'm gonna come back, and when I come back, I'm gonna judge the nations, and I'm gonna usher in the kingdom of God for all eternity. And teach them until that happens to be faithful to be hopeful, to live life on mission, to live life with purpose, to make a difference for the sake of the kingdom of God. Teach them not to forget that a life lived with purpose is a life lived with meaning. A life lived with purpose is a life lived with meaning. It's as if he was saying, look at the epidemic of people who are without any true sense of meaning. It's also fleeting. Listen, there's a lot of successful people who walk around feeling empty. There's lots of people who do well in life and who are skilled at life, who walk around feeling empty, like their life is void of meaning or purpose or significance. He says, if you want meaning, if you want significance, if, if you wanna feel like your, your life matters, regardless of what your job may be or what your job may not be, regardless of what your education is, regardless of what your financial position is. A life lived with purpose is a life lived with meaning. It's because I realize my life is a means to an end. My career is a means to an end. My money is a means to an end. My time is a means to an end. And when I live my life as a means to an end, it brings everything in my life meaning. Everything can have meaning when you see it as a means to an end, to God's end, to God's purpose, to God's mission. You see, God's purposes are worth living for, worth giving to, and worth participating in. They're worth living for, giving to, and participating in. Outside of our own families, the local church is the greatest thing we'll ever be a part of. It's the greatest thing we'll ever be a part of. It's where we carry out our King's mission. It's where we make disciples. It's where we baptize. It's where we teach. It's where we carry one another's burdens and cheer one another on. It's when we celebrate each other after victories and it's when we embrace one another after our failures. The local church 
is what the world needs right now. The world needs the church like never before. The question is, will we be the church? Will we live out our purpose to love God, love people, make disciples? And what I wanna invite us to do today is to re-surrender ourselves to that mission, to that purpose as individuals, as a church. The one thing that bothered Jesus, few things bothered him as much as seeing the people of God miss the point. He'd walk into the temple, see everybody distracted, everybody caught up in all the things. And it just broke his heart that everybody was missing the point. And so he turned over tables and he cleansed the temple as a way of saying, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Let's not miss the point. The point is to love God and to love people. And as we go, as we live, to make disciples. Heavenly Father, I pray today as Jesus followers that we would re-surrender to your words, to your purpose, to your mission. I pray God that you would in such a way that you would recapture our hearts, recapture our imagination for living life with purpose, your purpose. I pray that if we're struggling with meaning or significance, in our job, our career, our role in life, our, our lot in life, that God, that we would understand that everything begins to have meaning when we live life with purpose. So God, today, let it be your purpose that wins. Let it be your purpose that trumps all because you have all authority and we surrender to it in Jesus' name. And everybody said,